Joan Hogan welcoming you to the Prairie Dock Radio Program. Rick Holm, our Prairie Dock, is unable to be with us today, so I'm happy to welcome Kelly Evans-Hullinger, an internal medicine physician with the Avira Medical Group, Brookings. Good morning, Kelly. Good morning, Joan. Happy to be here. Well, I'm happy to have you here on this beautiful Halloween day. Normally, when kids are going to be trick-or-treating... The, and Brookings, it's, I can remember sending them out in snowsuits with their costume over the snowsuit. It's, mm-hmm. it's going to be a beautiful evening, so I hope the kids do have fun and it's a safe evening for them. With Kelly, Kelly brought a guest today. She has Sarah McGill with us. Sarah McGill is a clinical pharmacist who works both at South Dakota State University as a professor and also is helping out at the Avira Medical Group. Is that it? Welcome to our program, Sarah. Yes, thank you, Joan. Um, So my position is pretty new at the Avira Medical Group. And what I do there uh, is work right with the providers, meeting with the patient to try to optimize their medication concerns and, and their medication needs. So thanks for having me here today. Well, it's good to have you. And Kelly, there's a reason that you invited Sarah. She talked about medication concerns, mm-hmm. and it's mainly to deal, deal with diabetes. So am I correct on yeah, that? Yeah, so we're really excited to have Sarah over at the clinic, um, especially in, in my practice. Diabetes is one of the most common things that we see in clinic, and there are, you know, a, a percentage of patients that for which management is very difficult and having a pharmacist who can really help micromanage things like insulin and even non-insulin medications and be on the front end of some there's always new medications coming out for diabetes has been really helpful so Sarah and I are sharing a lot of patients even though she's only been here for about a month well that's great well, uh, anyone listening will realize we're, t- we're going to talk about diabetes today. If you have questions of us, give us a call at 692-1430. The reason we're talking about diabetes is tomorrow night on South Dakota Public Television on Dr. Holmes' On Call with the Prairie Doc, the discussion will be diabetes. It's 7 o'clock Thursday night. So we will kind of precursor that with our discussion of diabetes today, and we will start the discussion right after these words. Welcome back to Prairie Doc Radio. Happy to have you listening. Joan Hogan here and in the studio with me in Dr. Holmes' absence is Kelly Evans, who is an internal medicine physician with the Avira Medical Group Brookings. And Kelly is ready to discuss diabetes today, so she brought in our guest, Sarah McGill, who is a clinical pharmacist at both South Dakota State University and at uh, the Avira Medical Group Brookings. So welcome to both of you women. At the outset, I should ask you, because this seems like a simple question, but if you're gonna talk about diabetes, what is diabetes? Yeah, so uh, that's a little bit of a loaded question. As most people know, there are two distinct types of diabetes. Uh, Type one diabetes is the less common version. This is usually the type that is diagnosed in children or, or young adults, and that type of diabetes is purely an insulin deficiency. It's an autoimmune disease in which the body destroys the part of the pancreas that makes insulin. And so its treatment is purely insulin and trying to mimic the normal uh, physiologic release of insulin. Again, this is less common. This is a minority of the diabetes that I see. More common, in, especially in the US, is type 2 diabetes. And type 2 diabetes is a more complex illness. In late stages, it kind of can be an insulin deficiency, but most often, and certainly at its outset, it's a problem with how the body responds to insulin. And we use a term called insulin resistance. A lot of our cells, the 
muscle cells, the fat cells, the liver cells use insulin to decide how much glucose they're going to take up to use for energy. And there's a prob a basic problem with how they respond to that such that they stop responding to insulin, which leads to the, the glucose levels in our blood to rise and, and the problems that are a result of type 2 diabetes. What are some of those problems? How would you know that you're developing diabetes? What would what well, would occur? Classically, the, the symptoms that we learn are that people have what we call polyuria and polydipsia, meaning if your glucose levels are high, and they have to be pretty high, probably over 300 to have a lot of these symptoms, people get very thirsty and feel dehydrated, and glucose starts spilling into the urine, which means it pulls a lot of water into the urine, so people are very thirsty and they're urinating frequently. That being said, most of the diabetes that I diagnose, people are asymptomatic. They have no idea, which is why it's a great idea to at least see your physician. I didn't annually. realize that. Yeah. So they have no idea. Yeah. But they're just in for an annual Most checkup. Most people who have more mild elevations in blood glucose would never have symptoms. And so oh. diabetes is not unlike something like blood pressure or hypertension in which we're treating people to try and prevent things from happening 10 and 20 years down the road. and putting people on medicines who don't necessarily feel bad, which is part of why it's sometimes a challenging disease to treat because, you know, you can't blame people for not being as motivated to be on medicines for that sort of late gratification, if that makes sense. Right, right. So when you do diagnose it, is it a blood diagnosis or what is it that Yeah, it's generally from a blood test. And so that might be just an elevated blood sugar uh, often we use a blood test called the hemoglobin A1C, and we sometimes use this for screening, and we always use it for management of diabetes. And that's a number uh, that reflects a three-month average of blood sugars and has to do with how hemoglobin lets blood sugar attach to it and stay on it for three months. And so that's what we use when we're making decisions about medications most of the time in type 2 diabetes. So a lot of times you'll put people on some type of medication even though they have no symptoms. Yes. So you have a hard time Absolutely. convincing them that yep. it's worth their while. Absolutely. Boy, that's tough. And you know what? If people, you know, I would say the most common symptom that someone might have as a late effect would be something like diabetic neuropathy, numbness, tingling, pain in the toes and feet is the, the common thing. And you often if we start people on treatment then that might not be reversible. So when people have these late symptomatic problems from diabetes, we can't always reverse them. So it's really about trying to prevent them from happening. Okay, and I know, Sarah, your, your role then as a pharmacist is to make sure that people do take their meds. What do you, how can you help in this role? Because I know you help at the clinic, so working together, what do you do for these diabetic patients? Absolutely. So one of my biggest roles is to sit down and meet with a patient to get a sense of what they're actually doing. I find that this face-to-face -face time is really beneficial because we can talk about what's important to them, we can talk about any possible side effects they're having, and we can review some of those important reasons why they need to take their medications. And so after we get a chance to sit down and talk face-to-face, -face, I have a better understanding of how well their medicines are working for them, the things that aren't working, and then we can come up with a plan for any modifications that might need to be made. Okay. So, Sarah, or Kelly, Dr. Mm -hmm. Evans, in your practice then, do you send them to Sarah? How does this work? Yeah, so, I mean, a lot of diabetics, I would say it's not necessarily difficult to control their diabetes. They might be on one oral pill medication, and that's all it takes. 
the patients that I've collaborated with Sarah with tend to be people who are either on insulin and we're still not getting their numbers to the goal that we want, or they might be on several non-insulin medications and still not controlled and, and we're wondering what to do next, be it insulin or making changes in their non-insulin medications. Um, and some of that has to do with, you know, she, she has, like, like she said, a lot of time to sort of sit down and say, okay, if you're missing medication a couple of times a week, what are the problems? Why are you missing medication? And that has nothing to do with pointing fingers at patients for not doing what they're told per se, and, and everything to do with trying to work with them in seeing what's going to work in their life to try and maximize what we're able to do to, to prevent problems. So working together, you're really trying to prevent problems for these mm -hmm. people. Well, we're going to take our next break. Uh, before we do, if you are a diabetic or if you have a friend or family or you have a question about diabetes, why don't you give us a call? 692-1430. We'd be glad to take those calls, and we'll be back right after these important words from Avera Medical Group Brookings. Welcome back to Prairie Doc Radio. Joan Hogan here, and in the studio with me is Kelly Evans, who is a physician with the Avira Medical Group Brookings, and she brought our other guest, who is Sarah, I lost your name, Sarah, Sarah McGill. <laughs> I'm horrible at names. Sarah <laughs> McGill, who is a pharmacist at both the Avira Medical Group Brookings, as well as a faculty member at South Dakota State. Are you new to South Dakota State? I am, yes. I just started this shared position in September. Oh, but well, she's a jackrabbit. Oh, all right. <laughs> she, I she, have to tell you, I'm so excited. Our we're going to have our first granddaughter who just got accepted at South Dakota State. So we have our first grandchild who will be a freshman in the fall. Mm -hmm. She lives in the Minneapolis area. So we're just thrilled mm -hmm. she's coming in to be a jackrabbit. And you are a jackrabbit. Yes. One of the finest pharmacy schools in the country, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> well, we're glad to have you here. Were you a South Dakota person? Yes, I'm from Gettysburg originally. Okay. Well, it's mm -hmm. good to have you here. And I know uh, Kelly's thrilled to have you here because mm -hmm. any help she can have with diabetes is it, is well received, I'm sure. And I should say, Sarah does do more than diabetes, but I think that's one of the the big areas that, that we find her the most useful in our practice. Well, I, as you know, I have little medical background, but listening to Dr. Holm over the years, I realized that um, uh, diabetes can be just something that's difficult to control and difficult for people to live with. One thing, do you have suggestions? I know you put people on meds, and there's various meds, but I'll bet you give other suggestions on how they can control their diabetes. What would that be? Absolutely, and so this is stuff that people mostly know, but it's difficult to implement, and that has to do with weight control, diet, and exercise. Now, the certainly having being overweight or obese greatly increases the odds of type 2 diabetes and has to do with that mechanism of insulin resistance that we talked about. There are some people who have normal body weight and get type 2 diabetes, so it's not everybody. I mean, a, a large percentage of people that have their a new diagnosis of diabetes, I will tell them there's a good chance that if you are able to lose even a small amount of weight, 10 pounds, that this hemoglobin A1C will go down. And I really, there's a, there's a definition of pre-diabetes where labs are slightly elevated but not quite to meet criteria of diabetes in which we know that things like a modest amount of weight loss can make a big difference in preventing that from happening. Um, 
So diet and exercise definitely change how your body manages insulin and how much glucose is going into your body in the first place. We often will send people to diabetic educators who might be nurses or dietitians by training and can sit and have a lengthy conversation about those people, um, about those things with people when they're first diagnosed. Okay, mm -hmm. so there really is an effect if you're, let's say you're diagnosed with diabetes and you haven't been very physically active. Mm -hmm. What would you suggest for that person? I usually tell people to start with walking if that's what's easiest for them and walk outside for 15 minutes a day and when that gets easier, go to 20 minutes a day and um, sometimes we have to start with small goals but I think if you can talk with your physician or healthcare provider about setting some of those specific goals it gives people accountability and and um, a reason to get out and just get started doing something. Are there any support groups here in Brookings for people with diabetes? Maybe I'm, I'm not actually aware. not aware of one no. that exists. Sarah do you, mm -mm. you don't know of one? No. Well, might be a good I time to start one. I bet if you talk to your neighbor, though, you will find that uh, diabetes is extremely common and, and um, more people than you, you realize yeah. have I, that diagnosis. I know when my, my brother-in-law is probably the most active, physic, great uh, physical example of being active and keeping your weight mm -hmm. under control, he did everything right. I mean, mm -hmm. he exercised, he was never heavy, and he got diagnosed with diabetes about 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. The toughest thing for him was dealing with uh, he really went into kind of a depression. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't say kind of. I don't know a lot about depression, but I do know he really had a difficult time. It's like, why me type thing? Mm -hmm. And I did nothing wrong. Yeah. You don't have to do anything wrong to get diabetes, no, right? No, and we, we link these things with things like obesity. But if we're being honest, it's that's not all it is because right. not everybody at a certain weight gets diabetes. And not everyone with diabetes has a, an issue with weight. And so we definitely have to be kind about that because there's there's more that's out of our control than I think we, we realize. We try to control the things that we can. Well, Sarah, when you deal with people and try to help them on their day-to-day -day basis and dealing with their drugs, do you run into this problem that possibly when they're when they're diagnosed with almost any medical condition, do you find do you look for that possibility that they might be depressed? Absolutely. Um, changes in mental health really can come with any new chronic disease state diagnosis. And so we have to be sensitive to that as healthcare providers. Uh, we have to do routine screenings to kind of look to see if depression may be a possibility that this patient is having to cope with. Um, and then just being sensitive to being supportive to them as an individual. And as Dr. Evans was saying, this is, this is not an instance where we need to point blame. This is an instance where we need to work together to come up with the best possible solution to get an outcome that everybody is, is happy with. Okay, mm -hmm. I have a, a tying that in with uh, juvenile diabetes, which is, it's called juvenile, but it's actually type one diabetes. Yep. It often starts in a very young child. Mm -hmm. Can you, is there a cause, is there a reason, is there a mother who all of a sudden has a kid with, that's juvenile diabetes? If I had done something different, this kid wouldn't have it. How do you respond to that? As far as we know, the answer to that is no. There's a genetic predisposition. I mean, there, there, if you have a first degree or second degree relative with type 1 diabetes or any autoimmune disease, your risk of those things is higher. But it, that's, there's no perfect link. And we are not aware of an environmental um, or dietary or any other trigger for this. I, it's one of those diseases where I tell people it's just bad luck and we just have to accept it and move on. 
and move on. Mm-hmm. Okay. And they found new things for these children with uh, juvenile diabetes where they actually, instead of coming in for insulin shots, don't they have something that they wear on their body? What is that? So a lot. So like I said, we try to mimic physiologic insulin. So traditionally what that means is we put people on a once a day long acting insulin because your pancreas is always releasing insulin in small amounts and then mealtime bursts of short acting insulin. Um, so that's sort of the traditional way. We do this in type 2 diabetes sometimes too. You're, what you're talking about is an insulin pump, and okay. that essentially continuously releases insulin, and then the patient controls these boluses of insulin with meals when they have to count carbs. It takes a very savvy patient to do this. A lot of kids who are diagnosed young are actually the best people at this because they sort of accept it while they're young, and they learn how to count carbs and do all this very well. I think they're they're they end up being experts in in how these things work, um, and it's, it's it's probably more difficult to learn those things as an adult. That's interesting. I thought it'd be harder on the young kid, but for a young child, yeah. if they get that pump and they a lot of them they can seem read to do it, really they know well. what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's fascinating. Well, it's wonderful that there are new treatments for them and new ways new ways to control the diabetes. Well, we're going to take our uh, final break. If you have any questions or comments about diabetes or any other medical condition, why don't you give us a call at 692-1430, and we will be back after these words. Welcome back to Prairie Doc Radio. Joan Hogan here, and with me in the studio is Kelly Evans and Sarah McGill. Sarah McGill is a pharmacist that is wor- who has worked with Kelly in helping people deal with any medications that they're dealing with. And speaking of medications, how about for type 2 diabetes, what medic have they made a big change? I would guess in the past 40 years there have been tremendous changes in medicines for diabetes. Yeah. I mean, I would say pharmaceutical companies have put a lot of energy and money in developing new diabetes drugs, and that's obvious by the number of commercials that most people see on television for new diabetes drugs. Generally speaking, in type 2 diabetes, across the board, all societies recommend that our go-to first drug is still metformin, which is one of the oldest type 2 diabetes medicines, tried and true, cheap, and very effective. And so I almost always start there unless there's a very compelling reason not to. Um, after metformin, our diabetes guidelines are pretty wide open. What's the second choice? Well, there's maybe a, a, a three or four classes of drugs, each of which have several medications in them. And so we get a little bit individualized when it comes to that. And, and um, a lot of those medicines are new and sometimes they're costly. And so that's it gets a little bit more challenging after that. And Sarah can maybe speak to how we make those decisions too. Absolutely. So this is where it's really beneficial to have some extra time to sit down with the patient in discussing what that next line therapy may be, or maybe we're talking about the third or fourth drug we're going to be adding because diabetes is typically a disease of progression. Um, Even though patients may not be doing anything differently over time, uh, they do tend to get more and more resistant to the insulin where we have to continue to um, increase our aggressive treatment options. And so we're, when we're talking about that second or third line agent, there's there's numerous options. Some things we think about are the other health conditions that a patient may have. Um, is there something we need to be concerned about that a new medicine might help or potentially be a disadvantage? 
we think about other patient-specific concerns. How often would they be able to take a medication during the day? Do they have a risk for blood sugar going too low? And are there certain medicines we need to avoid because of that? More recently, there's been a lot of push to, dis to studying how new diabetes medicines actually help protect the heart or if they may potentially have um, concern for damaging the heart. And so does a patient have risk factors or current heart disease such that a particular new medication might be of additional benefit to them? So there's all these different factors that we have to weigh, um, always keeping the patient's concerns and abilities to what they can actually manage within their own lifestyle in mind. And certainly with a lot of the new medications, cost is potentially going to be an issue. So that would be, I would say, one of the biggest barriers when we're talking about which additional therapy to consider. It can get quite costly, mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. And dependent on things like in individual insurance coverage and these things that are sometimes moving targets and, and can be a challenge for both patients and providers to keep up to speed on. Because, I mean, I even have patients who they bring me letters in November saying, oh, my insurer decided they're not going to cover this drug X, Y, or Z anymore starting the first of the year, so we have to make a change. And that's really frustrating for everybody involved. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, we just had a comment come in from one of our listeners. Thank you for the call. And it's a woman with diabetes, and she just wanted to comment that once in a while she has a low reading, and then she realizes how serious this diabetes is. Sometimes she didn't realize till the low reading happened. So do you find that to be true for some of your patients? You know, that's when I'm seeing patients for diabetes follow up, one of the questions that I always ask is about low blood sugars. You know, our, our goal with diabetes is to minimize high blood sugars for these longer term outcomes, 10 and 20 years down the road, like we talked about. But a low blood sugar can be immediately harmful and in, the, in worst case scenarios even result in a seizure, which can be devastating. Um, so preventing low blood sugars has to be part of what we're talking about. And if someone comes in and says, we're, I'm having low blood sugars a couple of times a week, even if their hemoglobin A1C is high, that would cause me to back off on their medicine because that's dangerous. It is. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of backing off on their medicine or someone having some problems with diabetes, I noticed tomorrow night on Dr. Holmes' television program, he's going to have Dr. Richard Crawford who is with the Avera Medical Group in endo endocrinology and diabetes in Sioux Falls. When do you send one of your diabetic patients to a specialist? We don't have an endocrinologist in Brookings, do we? Correct. So for our com Brookings community, it is a challenge. They, these patients have to go to Sioux Falls. There's a high demand. I mean, diabetes is so common that endocrinologists are in higher demand than what we have, I would say, in, in our area. So the, the wait can be long which is part of why I'm so glad that Sarah is with our practice because she gives us another tool to try and help people. But when, when it comes to sending to an endocrinologist, it would be based on patients who are uncontrolled despite a lot of efforts and numerous medications. Or if I have patients who are on what we say basal bolus insulin, which might be four times a day insulin, those are patients that I often will send to an endocrinologist if they're able to get to Sioux Falls. Okay, but you don't feel as though all your patients need to oh, see an no. endocrinologist. No, nope. well, they, they would never go to sleep if the endocrinologists were seeing every diabetic patient. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that amazing? And you that specialty probably, when you were in med school, was it still a strong specialty? Oh, absolutely. Yeah? I okay. mean, yeah, it's diabetes is yeah common. And they do stuff that is not diabetes too, but that's a big 
chunk of their practice is diabetes. I'm sure it is. But it's so common that your primary care provider has to manage the probably over 90% of cases of diabetes, I would say. Okay. And Dr. Holm has mentioned on the program numerous times that he really believes that chronic diabetes that is occurring in our country has to do with our lack of exercise and mm-hmm. and uh, diet. Do you kind of conf- confer con- I with think that? in is so much that it's linked with obesity, yes. Like I said, not every case is necessarily in, in that patient. You spoke about your brother who was in excellent physical condition and still developed diabetes. So right. there's more to it than that. But absolutely, there's there's a link with these rising rates of diabetes and, and other health problems. So when people do have diabetes, is there a life considered, uh, they expected to have a shorter life, or is it something you can t- control for quite a while and just live a normal life and be fine? I think the lat. I mean, it's it, it's a heterogeneous disease, meaning there are some people who might just be on a little metformin for decades and do great and never have a problem with late complications of diabetes. With For people with uncontrolled diabetes, that does probably shorten lifespan as people start to have problems like heart disease or foot problems. I mean, people end up with amputations if they have uncontrolled diabetes. But I, I would say there's a certain population for whom it, it may not have any effect on their lifespan. I don't know what the average effect would be. Okay. Well, you mentioned at one point in your discussion that uh, it's tied to autoimmune diseases. Type 1 diabetes is. Oh, type 2 isn't. Not necessarily, no. Type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease. And Mm -hmm. are we learning more about autoimmune diseases? They're a very upsetting thing that's going on. Celiac disease now is considered autoimmune. Isn't... um, uh, multiple sclerosis is an autoimmune disease. Yeah, I mean, every every body system has its own cohort of autoimmune diseases, and they all have things in common. And I, I would say, we do we know the answer as to why people get it? No, there are a lot of theories, and I don't know that necessarily a single theory has borne out um, in anything. There are theories about a viral infection earlier in life or there's genetic theories and it's probably has to do with numerous different things. Okay. Mm-hmm. So auto you from what you said then you think most people have some type of autoimmune we all have an autoimmune system. I don't quite understand how that works. Okay, so an autoimmune disease has to do with your own immune system destroying a particular type of cell or tissue in your body. Does that happen to most people in no. one way or another? It doesn't. No, okay. that's an abnormal thing. Okay, mm-hmm. so when you have an autoimmune problem, it's an abnormal problem, and it can result in many different things. Yeah. Right? Yep, yep. Not pleasant thought. (laughs) Try to keep our immune systems working perfectly, right? Well, I've really enjoyed this discussion. We've learned quite a bit about diabetes. I'd love to know if there's anything you'd like to summarize, Sarah, before we uh, end up in the program. Sure. I would just say as a patient, if you do happen to have diabetes, don't be afraid to advocate for yourself if you feel like your treatment regimen is not quite what you want it to be. Uh, because as healthcare providers, we need to be working with you to optimize therapy and find, find the best regimen for you. And there's a lot of different ways that we can do that. Great. And how about you? Would you like to close, Kelly? Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I would just say I, I think it's interesting how many patients I think 
are, we're not controlling because of the medicine regimen, but it turns out we're not controlling because they are unable to take what I'm prescribing to them for some reason. So if those issues exist, don't be afraid to talk to your provider. You won't be scolded and we can, we can do better. That sounds great. Well, you, you can do better. You do great every time you come and visit. I really appreciate having you with us, Kelly. And we hope all of you have enjoyed our Prairie Doc radio program. And we'll listen again for Prairie Doc, brought to you by the Avira Medical Group Brookings. Please follow the Prairie Doc on Facebook and YouTube for free and easy access to the entire Prairie Doc library. As always, you can hear and see more from Dr. Holm online at prairiedoc.org. My thanks to you, Kelly, and to you, Sarah, for both joining us today. And thanks to all of you for listening to Prairie Doc Radio. Thanks, Joan. Thanks Thanks again, Sarah. Okay, I'll finish with Dr. Holmes' words. Stay healthy out there, people.